Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you're bored with people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our brilliant guest this week is an Australian novelist and commentator, Helen Dale. Welcome to Trigonometry. Hello, Constantine. How are you? I'm Hello, Francis. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to get insulted. Yeah. Yeah. I was hoping that was going to yeah. happen. No, I'll try not to do that. You, you will have plenty of opportunities to insult Francis in yeah. the course of the interview. Uh, and if you don't, I will. Anyway. And if, if Constantine doesn't, the, uh, the comments underneath the YouTube video certainly Our YouTube commentators, <laughs> yes. That, that is indeed my favourite part of doing the show. Is just Why are you the... so fat? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, basically. Uh, anyway. Well, uh, anyone who hasn't watched Trigonometry before has now been uh, fully... Uh, briefed on how this goes, which is just me and you making fun of each other. But we've got a brilliant guest, so let's get to you, Helen. Before we get into the interview, we wanted to talk to you primarily about the Australian elections, which is a big thing that's happened recently. But before we do that, just tell everybody, who are you? Uh, how have you come to the place that you're in now? How do you happen to be sitting in this rather uncomfortable chair right here? Uh, in Australia, my claim to fame, and this does go back a few years ago now, is I won the Miles Franklin Award, which is the Australian equivalent of the Booker Prize. And I won it for, I'll show you so I don't have to bore everybody. I won it for this book. Now, this is a new edition that came out in 2017. It's got multiple different covers. So if you go looking for it on Amazon, you'll see all these different covers for it. But this was... Uh, 20 odd years ago now. And the Miles Franklin Award uh, put me on the map, but as a novelist, not as a commentator. And then in subsequent years, I became better known as, as, a, uh, as a commentator. And I've probably in the UK, I mean, whilst people here do buy my novels, uh, they they see me as someone who writes for Standpoint and The Spectator and The Tory Graph and, and that, that kind of thing. And I did have one editor, I, I won't drop him in it, take about four years to figure out that the person who wrote the novel that he, wrote, that he liked was actually the person who wrote in his magazine quite mm. a lot. Oh, right, that's you. Yes, mm. congratulations. <laughs> I've only been writing for your magazine for about six years. <laughs> that, that kind of thing. And you've also worked in Australian politics, haven't yes, you? Yes, yes. I worked for two years um, as chief of staff to an Australian senator, Senator David Lionhelm. He's not in the Senate anymore. He tried to, and this is a relatively Roman, a, a, a relatively common move in Australian politics. He tried to shift from the federal Senate and he ran for the election in the state upper house uh, because it's a federal system. So he tried to go from the Commonwealth of Australia, basically, the Parliament in Canberra, to the state government in New South Wales, and he failed. He, he didn't succeed in doing that. So, he, And he's an older chap. He's, a, I think, 68 years old. So he's basically said, I think I've had enough politics now. I'm not doing it anymore. But yes, I had sort of two years in the belly of the beast working in Canberra, working for a parliamentarian, becoming very familiar with the Australian political system. And I saw some of the turmoil in Australia. I saw, for example, the I was actually standing in my senator's office in Parliament House when Malcolm Turnbull spilt, that's the Australian term, spilt the leadership, spilt Tony Abbott, who was the previous Prime Minister. And uh, it was all very dramatic and you know, sort of this ongoing Italy with crocodiles, I call it, where Australia keeps deposing its prime ministers and replacing them with another one, often on the basis of polls. And people are mystified by this because the country seems fine otherwise, except we keep changing the prime minister.
Guys, we wanted to take a moment just to say thank you to every single one of you who has supported us on Patreon, who sent us money through PayPal. We genuinely could not do the show without you. Having said that, we've now also found a corporate sponsor to sell out to. Absolutely, and it is the magazine The Week. And The Week is a news filter that pulls together the best articles from over 200 different sources, from publications such as The Telegraph, The FT, or for our one liberal snowflake fan, The Guardian. Exactly, and that's what they do. They do exactly what we do on the show, which is pull together information from different sides of the debate, the left and the right, so you don't find yourself stuck in an echo chamber and you can make your own mind up. And if you want to make the most of this offer, visit theweek.co.uk forward slash offer and use our special code, which is trigger for your six free issues of the week. What the week does is it allows you to read less and no more, which is going to appeal to people like Francis who can barely read. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's not just news as well. It's also sports. So if you're interested in football and you want to find out the latest details of the transfer window, they will have in that in there as well, which won't appeal to Constantine because he's a virgin. But seriously, guys, we know that you've got busy lives. You're not going to be reading 200 articles a day. And what The Week does is combine all those things in one easy package that you can look at once a week and know what's going on. Join thousands that trust The Week as their essential curated news source. Try it for yourself with your first six issues completely free. To take advantage of this great offer, visit theweek.co.uk forward slash offer. Enter our special code, which is, of course, Trigger, and you will get your first six issues of the week completely free. We were talking yesterday, sort of prepping for the interview, and you mentioned to me, like, you went, I'm right wing, and then you explained something else. And I just went, oh, my God, somebody has just said I'm right wing. What? And I think this is very, very important because I hear the term right wing used and it's always a pejorative. It's always an insult. It's always a euphemism for racism. And I think we need to detoxify what the term right wing actually means. What does it mean to you? And why do you feel no? Why do you identify as being right wing? The political spectrum, left to right, goes back to the French Revolution. And you have to accept that people at all different points along that spectrum are going to disagree with each other about what to do. In, this is why we have politics. It's why we have political parties. It's why we have elections. In context of the conversation, though, I was talking about I, one of the outlets that I write for is Quillette. And Quillette is now associated with what they call the intellectual dark web. However, Francis asked me yesterday, and I hope I'm not telling tales out of school by saying this, mm. uh, do I consider myself a member of the intellectual dark web? And whilst I write for their magazine, I don't think I do. And the reason I don't think I fit as a member of this IDW, apart from the fact that I think it's a silly name, <laughs> I do think it's a silly name, it's also everyone else that's in it, with maybe one exception or two exceptions, they're refugees from the political left. Yeah, and they're, they're happy, unhappy with their own team, basically. I am not a refugee from the political left. I've always been a mixture of conservative and classical liberal. And to me, and to get on to your definition here, there's two main streams of right-wing thought. One is the classical liberal tradition, and one is the Burkean conservative tradition. And most right-wingers in the UK and Australia are a blend of those two. 
I have more emphasis on the classical liberal tradition, which is a comment about the relationship between the individual and the state. You don't want the state to have too much power over you, the individual. And that goes in both directions. You don't want the state picking your pocket. You want to be able to keep your money and spend it. So that's the, the tax and welfare issue. But you also don't want the state telling you how to live. So that can be that can make you pro-same-sex marriage and pro-choice, but it can also make you very opposed to uh, banning turkey twizzlers, Jamie Oliver, you know, sugar tax, alcohol taxes, cigarette taxes. So that's your classical liberal. So you can look sort of left-wing if you talk about abortion or... Um, the nanny state or smoking or, you know, particularly smoking cannabis. A lot of classical liberals are pro-weed legalisation and I certainly am. Um, so you can look sort of left-wing if you're dealing with choice and lifestyle issues. But then as soon as you come back to uh, tax and welfare policy, you finish up looking right-wing because you'll be a fiscal conservative. You want a small, lean government. You don't want it with the ability to you know, impose crushing taxes on people. You don't care particularly, I don't particularly care about the existence of tax havens, you know, that, that kind of thing. So that's your sort of classical liberal tradition. The Burkean conservative tradition is order is hard to gain and easy to lose. The maintenance of order depends on unspoken rules that most of us follow without necessarily understanding why we follow them, but we know that if we break them, you get social disorder and it's much and it's difficult to get back to where we were. Uh, that's a terrible simplification of Burke. But what it leads to in the British tradition is institutional conservatism. Uh, it tends to be the standard borne by the One Nation Tories. And one of the reasons why so many One Nation Tories came out for Remain is because they're actually making an institutional argument. They're saying, we've been in the European Union for a really long time. Our institutions are all enmeshed with each other. If we attempt to leave, it will be difficult to do so. That is a Burkean argument. So when One Nation Tories are making it, they're not making it disingenuously. It's They have a serious case to make. But you can also have One Nation Tories who say, this is foreign to Britain's traditions. We have never had a supranational state over us in this way until you, unless you go back to the Romans and unless you want to reconceive of the European Union as the Roman Empire, and I don't think you do. Uh, <laughs> this is not part of our tradition. We have stood alone. We are an outward-looking seafaring people as opposed to landlubbers like they are on the continent. So therefore, our traditions and our institutions should be more focused within the United Kingdom and not paying um, obeisance to the European Union. They're both one nation Tory arguments and they're both perfectly good Burkean institutional conservative arguments. The third strand of conservatism doesn't really exist in either the UK or Australia, but it does exist in the United States. It's very important there. And that is social conservatism, opposition to abortion, opposition to same-sex marriage, uh, a degree of privileging of religion, a belief that the United States is a Christian country despite the wall of separation from Jefferson and so on and so forth. That's much weaker in Australia and the UK or New Zealand 
those kind of places, much stronger in the United States. If you saw that terrible interview where Ben Shapiro had an absolute car crash with Andrew Neil, it was those two visions of two, but they're both conservatives. Neil is not even really a classical liberal. He's a conservative, but he, Neil is a Burkean conservative. Ben Shapiro is a social conservative. And the two of them, it's like water and oil. Mm. Uh, And that's what happened in, in, in that interview because they broke each other's political compass and it was especially bad for Shapiro who was unfamiliar with the role of the state broadcaster, didn't know that Andrew Neil was the chairman of the Spectator, all of these kind of things. But it really broke his political compass to deal with a person who is obviously quite conservative but finds the American approach to the abortion issue completely mad. That's what triggered Shapiro, wasn't it? It was yeah, the, the it, way that he phrased the abortion question. Abortion and then Israel questions, yeah. which yeah. because the conservatives over here just are different. Yeah. yeah. So that's a really great layout of the conservative spectrum, by the yeah. way. I would really appreciate that. And that's something that will be really great to have for people who want to understand what conservatism or classical liberal actually Both mean. evil, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but, this is, this, but this is exactly why I was going to take it, because I don't think 99% of people in this country or in the United States or in Australia have any idea what you're talking about. Because the word right wing, as Francis was saying, is just a label now that you use for people that you disagree with, the people you think are racist, the people you think are xenophobic. It's, so how, yes, do, it's how do we get that? It's very silly and unfortunate because it would be, it's like... Uh, you used to get a little bit of this back when the wall came down in, in the late 80s and, and early 90s, that anybody who was on the left was written off as a communist, and it's obviously stupid. Um, you know, Tony Blair, a communist? Oh, pull the other one, it plays jingle bells, um, to use the Australian expression. So, I mean, it's that in reverse, basically. You cannot call a classical liberal a fascist. You can't call a Burkean conservative like Andrew Neil, a fascist, because they are different traditions. I mean, and I'm not saying that they don't necessarily agree on certain points, but fascism and socialism and communism can line up on certain points as well. I mean, they're all t- they all tend to be very high tax entities. Uh, they tend to be very pro-large states and lots of state power, you know, whereas classical liberals and Burkean conservatives will be on the side of, no, 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 that state is too big and too powerful. We don't want a state that that's that overmighty, otherwise it'll crush us all underfoot. And so, uh, yeah, I, I have seen this, that, oh, you're right wing and it's just used as a term of abuse. I, I'm working on the principle that it's on Twitter, that it's social media and so not representative. Uh, um, it's it's also creeps in, in into real life where people go, oh, that person's right wing, they're just a massive racist. Yeah, like, you know how people used to make uh, preface a racist comment by saying, I'm not racist, but now anyone who who talks about anything that's remotely conservative or right-wing has to preface it by saying, I'm not right-wing, but... Yeah, I think that's very foolish because I have, because of the the influence of classical liberalism in my intellectual and political heritage, I mean, I have whole position, significant numbers of positions that are actually quite left-wing, Drug, uh, and the, the three big ones, drugs, abortion, LGBT rights, uh, they're sort of three classical, where the classical liberals and the lefties will line up, mm. but for different reasons. 
classical liberals, it's because, no, 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 the government it should not be telling you how to live your life. The government should not be telling you what to put in your mouth. Uh, the government should not be telling you how to use your body. That's not the government's business. The government can go fly a kite. That's the classical liberal perspective. Whereas for, for left-wing people, it's more about personal liberation and being accepted and valued based on your identity and based on what you are. I mean, I don't see necessarily anything wrong with those arguments, but they're not ones that resonate for me for the simple reason that if you overuse those kind of identity arguments, they can be, you know, they're not just for one side, basically. Uh, you can get, I always knew, I mean, I was involved in various LGBT campaigns in, in, in my youth, and I always knew, I remember sitting there when we had pride marches and so on and so forth, um, one day it's not just going to be us wanting pride, it'll be everyone. Um, likewise, I remember even as a teenager seeing sort of the beginning of the sort of the whole black power movement, and I remember thinking, okay, if black power's okay, why isn't white power okay? You really might want to think about this. Mm -hmm. This is probably not a good idea, maybe in the very short term to get people to pay attention to a particular social issue, but you don't want to persist with it because to me, the the left identity politics is is not a politics as such. It's a toolkit, and it's a toolkit. It's like your you set of Sid Chrome spanners. You anyone can open that box of spanners and make make use of what's in there to do whatever it is they want to do. And you're starting to see, and it, it kind of shocks me a bit actually, because it never used to be part of any sort of conservative tradition with which I was familiar. You're now starting to see that kind of identity politics emerging on the right mm. side of the aisle. And that's very foreign to me. I never saw it. And I see it now and it's, well, it's quite shocking. I find it quite horrible. I said, no, 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 that's not how you're supposed to do things. You know? <laughs> you're not supposed to get the state in your pocket favouring your team because of something that you are. And what specifically are you talking about when you talk about identity being used in that way on the right? Uh, well, you're starting to see genuine ethno-nationalism. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I've, I've started to see that. Uh, that had been killed. That had been absolutely put in its box. You know, Enoch Powell was thrown out of the Conservative Party for even getting a tiny bit near those kind of perspectives. Uh, there are quite a lot of people out there now who sort of are quite, quite blunt about that. And also the use of true facts, things that are true, are construed in an identitarian way. And I'll give you one from each side of the political aisle so you can see what I mean. White boys in Britain do, particularly working class white boys, do poorly at school. They're the bottom rung of the ladder. They're the bottom rung of the ladder. Yeah. Instead of saying we need to address disadvantage in this country, there are now a significant number of voices saying we need specific programs for poor white boys in exactly the same way that if you go back 20 years, we need specific programs for poor black kids or we need anti-Islamophobia programs for Muslims or as far as I'm concerned, and this is very much the classical liberal side rather than the conservative side, this is all nonsense. You can't do this because of the toolkit quality of it. So you have it, to address disadvantage and you discrimination have to, yeah, instead yeah, of targeting in particular te groups. Targeting particular groups. Because mm. the thing is, by targeting particular groups, you finish up in a situation where you treat everybody in the group as a widget. You know, they're all the same. Mm. And that's fraught with danger. It doesn't matter what group of people that you're dealing with. 
absolutely fraught with danger and uh, and 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 it, and because of the toolkit quality anyone can use it including really quite reprehensible people on on both extremes so you get the the uh, the white identitarianism or, or ethno nationalism using the wrong hand <laughs> you're sort of on the, on the right hand side but you're now also getting you're starting to see um elements of it uh, on the political left with um in in the, in this country, with uh, the approach to Israel in, in the Labour Party, you know, instead of just having an argument about oh, we should recognise Palestine as a country or we should stop selling arms to Saudi Arabia, which are are legitimate arguments, and and Corbyn is not a fool for 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 making both of them historically. It's become awful arguments, you know. You say you've got people in the Labour Party tweeting Rothschild memes and, mm. you know, and loopy conspiracy murals with loopy conspiracy theories in them. You know, it's sort of, that's the same thing on the other side. Sure. It's just, you just don't want to go there. About the election, let's get into it because Francis and I, I don't know if it's fair of me to say on behalf of Francis, but it's certainly something I know nothing about. And, uh, what I did see, however, is when the, the election happened, A, it was not predicted by people, including you yourself. No, I didn't predict uh, it either. You didn't expect it to happen. The polls had predicted for, I think, 56 consecutive polls had predicted that it wouldn't happen that way. Um, you have a, a right wing or certainly a centre-right government uh, retaining its power. Uh, which was unexpected. Yes. A lot of people have likened it to Brexit and Trump. The thing that I saw on all over my Twitter was, oh, we're living in this racist, sexist, xenophobic, blah, blah. Exactly the same thing that happened with Brexit, exactly the same thing that happened with Trump. So basically a bunch of woke people freaking out, which always makes me happy. Uh, <laughs> so I looked at this and I thought, well, let's get someone in to talk about it. So why don't you tell us what happened why you think it happened, and what are some of the correlations with Trump and Brexit? Is it the same thing? Is it something different, etc.? Okay, I'll I'll try to work backwards through that. There is some similarity with Trump and with Brexit, and also with the two thousand and fifteen UK general election, in that it was an unexpected victory, mm -hmm. and. Australian pollsters were humbled very badly, including the leading polling company in Australia called NewsPoll, which is actually run by the newspaper that I cover Brexit for. I, I write for The Australian, which is the country's main national daily, and The Australian owns NewsPoll. And it had always been, had a very good reputation for being an extremely accurate poll. Now, there are reasons for that which I'll, I'll get onto in a, in a minute. But certainly it was an unexpected win, and of course it was a win that went to a centre-right government. Where it's different from the Trump phenomenon, and particularly different from the Trump phenomenon, and also to a degree from Brexit, but not that different, um, is Scott Morrison, the Australian Prime Minister, and the Liberal National Coalition are to the left of the US Democrats. Oh wow. Okay, you need to understand <laughs> you need to understand the the difference in politics between a orderly, prosperous, extremely well-governed commonwealth country and the United States. Australians look at the United States, I'll be quite frank, and they just look at the United States and go, that's a failed state. <laughs> Our American viewers are just <laughs> so, I We're mean, called trigonometry for a reason. <laughs> breathe, guys, breathe. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, 
for example, to, to give you an idea, Australia has universal health care, all the things that the Americans are always tearing themselves apart over. Uh, and not only does it have universal health care, it has extremely good universal health care. You know, it has fully funded pensions, none of this problem of the huge debt of Social Security in the, in the United States. Um, it has zero, almost zero gun crime and when Democrats want to beat the Republicans over the head in the United States about their gun laws, they always point at Australia because of the, the, the very strict gun laws that exist in, in Australia. Post it, a big massacre. Yeah, post yeah, a big po massacre after the Port Arthur massacre. So, for example, there are some quite conservative, individually socially conservative people, either in the, the Liberal National Coalition or who have been in it historically, but because Australia has particular characteristics as an electorate, the social conservatism never really gets anywhere. Mm. For example, historically, a man who's just lost his seat, Tony Abbott, clearly wanted to tighten up abortion laws. And John Howard, the then Prime Minister, basically got Tony Abbott while he, Tony Abbott was the health minister, grabbed Tony Abbott by the scruff of the neck and went, <laughs> sit down and shut up. We want to stay electable. So Australian politics is very centrist and there is not a huge gap or there hasn't historically between being a huge gap between the coalition, the Liberal National Coalition and Labor. There's a reason for that and I've I tried to explain it in a little podcast of my own but I'll, I'll do it a bit here. Australia has a very unusual electoral system. It's like nowhere else on the, the planet. And the most important thing you need to understand about the Australian electoral system is that voting is compulsory. So you don't have any issue in Australia with getting the vote out. Mm. And also, if you're too nutty in your policies, too far to the left or too far to the right, whether on the left it's about identity politics or... Um, environmentalism on the right about things like abortion or um, cutting welfare or, or that kind of thing. If you go too far in one or the other direction, because all of the people vote, you truly get a distribution that looks like that. Mm -hmm. And the great bulk of the population is in the middle of that distribution. And if you are too weird, they will not vote for you. So sounds glorious. <laughs> oh, it just sounds like a warm bath. So pandering to your base yeah. is actually a very bad strategy. It's a very bad strategy. Right. Don't pander to the base. Mm -hmm. Both parties have made mistakes doing this. Recently, it was the Labour Party, uh, but it was, and that's one of the reasons they lost that election. But it's also the coalition has made the same mistake. Typically, at state elections. They tried to pander to their social conservative base in Victoria. And they were critical of, for example, a drug injecting room that's available for drug users in Victoria. They were critical of uh, education about same-sex relationships in Victorian schools and just discovered that they did not take the Victorian people with them at all <laughs> and got creamed at the state election. Mm. Uh, so you get this centrifuge of driving people's policies to the centre. Mm -hmm. Now, so that people don't think that um, either you guys at Trigonometry or I am around to ask how the Australian political system works and why it does. I've mentioned the compulsory voting and the effect that it has. If you want to understand the Australian political system, read this book.
I'm going to hold it up there. For our listeners, it's from Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage. Yes, from yeah, How by Australia Judith Brett. by Judith Brett. She's a professor of political science at an Australian university, I think, at Melbourne University. And the Democracy Sausage refers to the fact that Australian elections they're held on a Saturday, so they're like a carnival atmosphere. And it is customary for them to be held in places where local community groups run by schools, by surf life saving clubs, by the police youth clubs, by scouts, by guides, uh, put food stalls on uh, to raise money. So one of the experiences that Australians have when they go to the polls, all of them, uh, <laughs> <laughs> they do go to the polls, is it's a carnival atmosphere. It's like a holiday. Mm. And so people eat food and the democracy sausage. Uh, if you, the Twitter hashtag, you know, OzVotes19 had a slice of bread with a sausage on it and tomato sauce. Uh, that was the sort of classic. It's not a hot dog. It's on a slice of bread. <laughs> you have to ask, especially when you go to one of the stalls at an Australian. They, they're a polling place officially, but Australians always refer to them as polling booths. And it's so it's a very carnivalesque kind mm -hmm. of atmosphere. It's a very attractive sort of atmosphere. And it's a very unusual system. And the reason this book starts, the title is From Secret Ballot, is the secret ballot, as you experience it, when you walk into a little cubicle and you have a pencil there and your ballot papers, that cubicle and the, the ability to hide how you're voting uh, in its modern form, there, there was a version of it in classical antiquity, but this is a separate modern invention. The modern form is actually an Australian invention. And when it was first developed in the late 19th century, for a long time, people in other countries in both the UK and the United States referred to it as the Australian ballot because it was an Australian invention. But So, so what's we, the impact of that? Tell us about the impact the and impact how that affected this well, election. Well, the secret ballot, the importance of the secret ballot is that people can't be frightened in or bribed into voting a particular way. You don't know how they're going to vote. And that is the virtue of the secret ballot is that you find out what people really think. In economics, economists talk about the difference between stated preferences and revealed preferences. The secret ballot is the way that you get revealed preferences. And it's also why most recently in Australia, although this hasn't happened before in Australia, but in many, many other countries, why the way people vote in the polling booth is different from the kind of things they may have told pollsters. And this phenomenon has become more common on the political right because people are afraid to say what they think. They think they'll be criticised for it. Maybe legitimately, maybe maybe not, but people don't often like to be criticised for their political views. So they don't <laughs> say anything, but then they go into the secrecy mm. of the polling booth and say on the ballot paper what they really think. And that phenomenon has, was first identified in 1992 when John Major unexpectedly won a general election here. And uh, it was called, British pollsters called it the shy Tory syndrome. Um, it doesn't always happen. And UK pollsters, since they were embarrassed by it again in 2015, have generally become quite good at controlling when you feed all the data through polling, through your yeah, so your poll aggregators have become quite good at controlling for the shy Tory syndrome, which is why, for example, in 2017, Servation did really well. They, they, they picked the, the gen UK general election almost down to the seat 
the seat numbers. They did really, really well. Uh, you can do that. You can do very good, accurate polling. It's not impossible, but you have to be really aware of all the the factors that are flying around. But in this outside. case, they were quite lazy, weren't they? It was a point you made to me over the phone. Yes, yes. Australian pollsters, because of the compulsory voting in other countries, pollsters have three existential issues that they have to deal with. Is the person that I'm asking, number one, is the person that I'm asking questions of even going to vote? Number two, does that person form part of a representative sample? And number three, is that person telling me the truth? Those are three big things. So when one of them goes wrong, number three, for example, is it shy Tories, um, they have to be controlled for by the polling company. Number one, likely or unlikely voter. Sometimes they ask them directly, but then you've got a problem with number three again. They might lie. Oh, someone's asking me about whether I'm going to vote or not. I better say yes. So you get completely false impressions about turnout. And number two, which is where the Australian pollsters went wrong, is they had problems with getting an accurate sample. Some of this wasn't their fault. There's a bank of telephone numbers called the uh, Government Integrate, Integrated Number Database that police and emergency services use in Australia. And pollsters, polling companies like NewsPoll, the one at my own newspaper, have been pleading to be allowed access to that for many years now because they were aware that they would eventually, if you don't have access to a full bank of telephone numbers, including mobile numbers, you start getting difficulties with a representative sample. However, in other respects, <coughs> sorry, I have to cut that bit out. In other respects, the um, they were lazy because one third of the things that really matter for pollsters in the United States or France or the UK, worrying about is this person going to vote, they didn't have to care. And that's a big, th when you've got three questions you have to answer and suddenly one of them doesn't matter, it becomes much easier to control in the other areas and get accurate forecasts. Now, when I was working for Senator Lionhelm in 2016, we had in-house polling that we did. We commissioned polling companies to do stuff for us and asked the questions and came up with the frameworks and so on and so forth. I've done all of this myself as, as a... Um, as a chief of staff to a politician, but we also used publicly available polls like NewsPoll. And my experience of them was always that you could rely on them. Australian pollsters were very, very good. They got very accurate throughput because of the compulsory voting. And even, and I, it, this must be said, it even must be said the Saturday election that they got wrong with the 56 news polls in a row indicating that Labor was ahead of the coalition. Particularly in the last couple of weeks of the election, the gap was within the margin of error. Do you know what that means, the margin of error? Yeah. When it get, the gap is in the margin of error, it literally means it could go the other way. Mm. And, and a huge number of pundits don't pay enough attention to the margin of, margin of error. The only polls you really should have taken into account of those 56 were the ones where the lead to Labor was above the margin of error or outside of the margin of error. And sometimes it was. So you clearly, in those places, you've got other issues, sampling problems and shy Tories. But where it was in the margin of error, particularly in the weeks, the tightening of the polls and the lead up to the election, more pundits, including people at the Australian newspaper, and they 
are completely frank about this now, like uh, uh, journalists I've been interviewed by in Australia, both for The Australian and for uh, his show on Sky News, Chris Kenny, even he admitted, he said, yep, I, I have not paid enough attention to the fact that the polls tightened before the election and that uh, you had a situation where um, it was within the margin of error and all that means is you could literally just fall in the opposite direction. So you ca you can't blame pollsters for pundits being innumerate. So there's, <laughs> so there's that. And you also can't blame pollsters for people lying to them. Mm. I mean, they can control for it just for something like shy Tories to the, the best of their ability. But in Australia, they've never had to do that before. That's a new experience. All right. So th that's all great. And what were the main issues uh, in the election? Because you say it's a much more centrist place. Mm. So uh, does that mean, for example, an issue like immigration was much less of a thing than yeah, it is here? Complete non-issue in the last election. Really? Immigration did not. <laughs> the, the two really big issues in the last Australian election that really mattered and that annoyed people on both sides were climate change and tax. Okay. And little bit of background here. Australia not only has compulsory voting, it also has uh, instant runoff or compulsory preferential voting, which is where you number the boxes. The cover of the book does it really well with the letters. Mm. Yeah, you number them all in rank order. And the one refers to the primary vote. And then the subsequent numbers are the preferences. It's possible, much easier to register a protest vote. And I'll use British political parties here. Um, rather than an Australian one, so that you get what I mean. You're angry with the, con if you had the Australian voting system, you're angry with the Conservatives because you don't like the way they've handled Brexit. So that means you vote number one for a protest party, for UKIP or the Brexit party, and then number two for the Conservatives. So you've given the Conservative Party a bop on the snoot mm. for doing their job badly, mm. but you've also awarded them eventually, if the number of votes that either UKIP or the Brexit party get is less than the number of votes that the Conservatives get, the preferences will flow ultimately to the Conservatives. Now, what has happened in Australia over many decades now is that the Labor Party's primary vote, the number of ones it mm. gets in its boxes, has been dropping. And whilst it's often been able to form government, because it gets preferences from other parties. The way funding works in Australia for a political party is determined on how many number ones you get. It's based on your primary vote. And now the political party that's been taking votes from the Australian Labor Party is the Greens. And the Greens have run very hard on climate change issues, and they ran very hard in this last election campaign on a coal mine that was going to be built in the Carmichael Basin, the Adani coal mine. Adani is the name of the Indian company, which is involved in funding and building this mine. It hasn't been started yet. There's been all sorts of fights. There was an enormous fight over the Adani mine in 2015 when I was working for Senator Lionhelm. So this has been a persistent, ongoing issue. Huge climate change, huge fight over climate change. Indian colonialists coming over to <laughs> Australia. <laughs> Pillaging the country's resources. 
And Eddie, oh, well, yes, there were some. There are some people who literally ran that line, which is really quite extraordinary. <laughs> but, but the Greens were running the environmentalist line, and a number of things happened with Adani. Adani is in Queensland, or will be in Queensland. The, the Queensland state government has just put the approvals through because it's a Labor government. It's sort of like, oh, whoops, this appears to have lost Labor the election. We better change our tune. So it's in Queensland. Queensland is a very resource-rich state. Uh, coal, oil, diamonds, natural gas, uranium. It's got everything, basically. And so the mine was going to be in Queensland. There was an enormous environmental fight over it. And Labor, angry, legitimately, I think, at the loss of its primary vote over many decades, moved closer to the Greens, mm. which was opposed to the building they were opposed to the to, to the it's an open cut so op, opposed to the mine basically rather than the tr traditionally the labor party would have said no this is providing thousands of jobs for good jobs that you know, the, the line that Donald Trump uses about good jobs for working class people who mm. aren't necessarily terribly skilled but they're hard working and if they're willing to work in a remote location, they finish up getting a very high salary. And that phenomenon of working in a remote location and working for, say, two weeks at the mine and then having four days off going, four or six days off going back to a big city, is known as FIFO in Australia, fly in, fly out. Mm -hmm. And this is very, very common in Queensland. And the city where I first practised law, um, I first went to the criminal bar in, in Australia. It was a city called Rockhampton, which is right on the periphery of one of the two big coal areas, the Bowen Basin. So there's the Bowen Basin, and then further inland, there's the Galilee Basin, which was where the Adani mine is, go is going to be now. And all these people in those areas, uh, many of them Indigenous, many of them Pacific Islander, many of them, the, all of them quite often quite disadvantaged educationally and socially and some working class, traditional Labor voters, uh, they would have expe they expected the party of the worker to be in favour of good jobs for people like them. And what happened is that Labor's primary vote in Queensland went down even further, went down to 27%, which is just unsustainable. You know, so the number of people who were willing to put Labor number one on the ballot paper was only 27%. Think in terms of first past the post. How likely is it if you have a seat with four or five people running that a person who only gets 27% of the vote is going to win in first past the post? It's very difficult. And so Labor's primary vote collapsed even further. And people, instead of preferencing a minor party like One Nation or the United Australia Party, and then going back to Labor, they then preferenced and went to the coalition. So there wasn't much shift on the at the number one level, but the preference flows were 10, 12, sometimes 15% in favour of the coalition. So Labor lost all of its regional seats in Queensland except one, and that it was the mine climate change, the mine issue there. It was the mine what did it. Yeah. <laughs> and But there was another reason that I found very interesting on your podcast listening to it. It was because Labour prioritised the LGBTQ vote, and which alienated the Pacific Islander, Islander vote. vote. Yes, it did. And it was all because of a rugby player. Yeah, well, I mean, this is, this is what led to the shite. I am reasonably satisfied now, having done a booth-by-booth -booth analysis in two of the seats that Labour lost and one seat that it very nearly lost, or a Queensland seat that it very nearly lost, um, seats with a very significant concentration of Pacific Islander voters. And I mean, you, you, you won't know what they 
you won't know what they are. Pacific, uh, Pacific Islanders are people from, you know, sort of Vanuatu, Cook Islands, New Zealand, Tonga. Uh, Hawaii, Tonga, Fiji. Uh, there are lots and lots and lots of them in Australia going back over over 100 years. Uh, Pacific Islanders were brought often forcibly to Australia in the 19th century to cut sugarcane. And they were referred to, this is a, quite a vulgar word in Australia now, but it's historically accurate. They were referred to as Kanakas and they were a form of indentured labour. So there is a significant going back. See, I don't know that word, but I am now worried that Helen yeah. has just dropped the, the, the N-bomb on our show. We're going to get demonetised forever. Well, what, <laughs> what, what you're getting now is just me getting what I used to call as a teacher SBS, which is sweaty back syndrome. <laughs> not sweaty bum syndrome. No, no, sweaty back where you can just feel the sweat right. trickling let, down let, your... let, Let's not explore that. <laughs> it's, it's not but a pleasant yeah, so, image for anybody. But yeah, it's... So, so you haven't dropped the N-bomb, but... No, no. but it's, it, it, that was the term that used to be used. It's not used now and yeah. it, it's not as rude as the n-bomb and there are certainly ruder words in australia than that i can but believe that is, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you do have a reputation yeah. but, which procedure yeah. <laughs> australia has a significant pacific islander population and the pacific islands the missionaries who went there were almost uniquely successful compared to everywhere else in the world and they're a mixture of pentecostal Presbyterian, Methodist, uniting, you know, sort of all different varieties of Protestant. They're not Catholic. They're all varieties of Protestant. And they're quite traditionally conservative and religious. And they have this very similar moral values to Muslims, except, as I, I've pointed out to a few people, except they're, they're completely monogamous, obviously, because that's part of Christianity. And Israel Folau, who was the rugby player in question, put up on his Instagram a homophobic, I don't do Instagram except for pictures of my cat, so I'm not really <laughs> sure how it works, uh, a homophobic meme, basically, that among other things said that gay people were going to go to hell. And, of course, he is the best rugby player <laughs> in Australia. He is a multimillionaire from being a rugby player. He's enormously gifted. And this caused an enormous stink because he'd violated Rugby Australia's social media policy. And so there was this ongoing and enormous stink that just dragged on and on and on. Because you know how these sporting bodies, they have their own internal uh, requirements in terms of dispute resolution and so on and so forth. And then you can go through the courts and then you can go through an employment tribunal and all of this kind of thing. And all the different stages of this over a conservative Christian rugby player uh, was just going on at the same time as the election campaign. Mm. And an organisation called the Australian Christian Lobby did what I used to do for um, my, my senator when I was working for him, did private polling about the effect of the treatment of Israel Folau was having, not only among Pacific Islanders, but just among Christians more generally. And it soon became clear that even many people who were not particularly Christian were looking at it from the perspective of, of, of proud sports people. Australia is a proud sporting nation, has got a sporting, significant sporting heritage. It's taken very seriously in, in, in the country and the, many, many years. Australians are very good at sport and the country wins numbers of Olympic medals out of all proportion to its tiny population, every Olympics and all of this kind of thing. So a lot of people were just looking at the Israel Folau situation and going, this is to do with his ability to play rugby, how? And why do you even care? And even a couple of other people who were either sort of ex-wallabies 
and uh, ex-Waratahs, which is his state site, New South Wales Waratahs, were saying, we, it's not just Israel Folau, you'll have to get rid of every Pacific Islander in the Australian rugby team because that's what they're all like. They just don't necessarily stick it on their Instagram, but that's what they all think. They're conservative Christians. Are you going to get rid of all of the Pacific Islanders out of the Australian rugby team? And if you do, isn't that a bit racist? Because it's this it's the same argument that you have with Islam over here. If you start picking on people for having really, really conservative religious views, and most of those people are Muslim, and most of those people are brown, you mightn't mean it, but it can start to have a racist, a racial effect. In Australia, it's it's Pacific Islanders. If you start chucking every Pacific Islander out of the rugby team for having conservative religious views... You're going to lose ever again for the next 10 years. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, yeah, basically you might as well say, we surrender to New Zealand yeah, yeah. <laughs> because the all blacks are going to walk all over yeah. us. Yeah. You might as well say that. Mm. But you're also, you're getting rid of all of the brown players in your team yeah. and you finish up with a team of only white players. And... Which no some mad- people in Australia probably would be quite <laughs> but no ma- And no matter how you dress that up, it's going to look bad. Right. <laughs> so a lot of people, what you're saying is a lot of people felt that uh, what we might call the progressive left had gone too far in the way that Israel was dealt with. Yes. And as a consequence of that... In some, er- in some in electorates, some, yes. it, transferred in, it transferred. I'm reasonably satisfied now, having done a booth-by-booth analysis, that it transferred into votes for the coalition, or at least preferences to yeah. the coalition. They might have put number one for, you know, a, a local, uh, for a, a protest party, and there's lots of those, but they've, their preferences flowed to the coalition rather than to, to so, Labour. All right, so the environment was an issue. Uh, the kind of protection of what you might call freedom of expression or social... Religious freedom, I religious would say. Freedom, religious freedom, yeah. 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 That was an issue. But the real big issue that amazingly you talk about is the economy actually uh, economy hasn't affected western elections it's certainly in the uk britain or in the uk or america for quite a while some people yeah, would argue it was yeah the other one was a tax issue yeah. it, not so much it's the overall economy uh-huh. australia's economy is great mm. you know there, there's not been a recession in australia for 28 years wow uh, the last recession was in 1991 i'm an old lady and i barely remember it mm. okay i mean i was just out of high school mm. To give you an uh, an idea of, of um, it was so long ago, and I can't sort of really remember many of the details because you can't when you're kind of nineteen. Mm. It's yeah, that that kind of thing. And so the Australian economy is fine. Um, highest minimum wage in the OECD, lowest unemployment. That's not going to be an argument. The argument in this case, and I'm going to be very brief here because it's otherwise we'll just get into the weeds with corporate law and tax policy. And that's fine and entertaining for me because I used to be a corporate lawyer, but it's not very entertaining for your listeners. Well, it will be entertaining for the one listener that stays with it. For the one listener that stays with it. Very briefly, Australia doesn't have state pensions in the same way as the UK. You don't get one automatically. You have to be poor. The social expectation in Australia, and it's imposed by law, is that you are meant to provide for your own retirement and you are meant to put money into what is called your superannuation fund, which is your pension. Now, this is compulsory. Everyone has to do it. It's like the voting system. It's been compulsory for a very long time, since 1990. And it means that the majority of people in Australia have 
fully or partly funded pensions. They don't have to hold their hand out to the government to get money when they're old. However, an entire thicket of rules around super, super, Australians call it super, have developed over the years and that make it easy to do this, that mean you pay less tax, that mean that when you get money from your share investments, you pay less tax or you get a rebate and so on and so forth. And one of the rebates that a lot of people in Australia, not just pensioners, but a lot of people were getting was known as franking credits. And it's a way of avoiding double taxation for the income you earn from dividends. And basically the Labor Party was wanting to massively tighten this up and make it much harder for people to get as much in the way of a rebate in terms of franking credits from the government. And what this meant was that a lot of people who are self-funded retirees who don't get any money from the state uh, were dependent on franking credits on, on this particular perk that had been built into the tax system. And I, I am aware of individuals, for example, who, who got in contact with me in the lead up to the election, who were retired, self-funded retirees, no money from the government at all, their pensions are fully funded, saying, I'm going to lose a third of my income because they were getting it via this tax loophole, but not illegal. I mean, it's it built into the system to encourage people to provide for their own retirement. And that caused an enormous stink. It meant that anybody who had investments where they were getting franking credits as a result of dividend payments on the stocks that they owned, uh, if you were getting a significant sum of money, uh, particularly amongst pensioners, then that just encouraged people to vote against Labor, even if they were historically Labor voters, because they could just, you could literally just get a financial calculator out and work out exactly how much less you'd have once that legislation was passed through the Australian, the relevant legislation was passed through the parliament. So it was a tax issue. All right, I hear you. So we've been talking for a good half an hour now. I don't hear in what you've described why all these people think Australia is this deeply racist, xenophobic place and uh, that is the election result is an expression of that, which is I just saw on my, like I said, on my Twitter feed and on my Facebook, all lots of Australian progressives or whatever just going on about what a terrible place Australia is because you voted for the centre-right. Centre-right government, yeah. yeah. Um, Australia can look racist to other countries, but not for the reason that many Australians give you and also not for the reasons that people in the UK or the US give you. Australia has more immigrants per head of population than anybody else, and it's more diverse than any other developed country. A quarter of the population is born overseas, uh, more than the US, more than France, more than here. All the colours of the rainbow, so on and so forth, that's not the issue. Australians are pro-immigration. That's not the problem. Where the country is construed as racist by people overseas is that it has enacted a spate of legislation over decades, going right back to the early 90s, that has effectively torn up the Refugee Convention. Australia only takes refugees that it wants. You can't just pitch up in Australia and claim refugee status. If you do, you will be locked up. Mandatory detention. And that goes back to a Labor government. And it was reinforced by John Howard. And you probably heard the election slogan, we will decide who comes here and the circumstances in which they come. It was called the Tampa election, but John Howard did that. But the original mandatory detention policy was introduced by Paul Keating, a Labor prime minister. So 
when people say Australia is a racist country, they don't mean, they shouldn't mean, because they'd just be wrong, that it's about skin colour or ethnicity or diversity, because it's not. However, Australia will not take poor, crying people who say it's unsafe for me to live in my country. And there were a number of incidences where boatloads of asylum seekers were simply allowed to drown in the Timor Sea to encourage the others to translate the French phrase. Mm. You know, so they all, if they realise that they're just going to drown when they try to get to Australia, um, they'll stop coming and that's precisely what happened. And the person who most recently enforced that policy in Australia was Scott Morrison mm. because he was the immigration minister before he became treasurer and now he's prime minister. Uh, but the thing is, don't blame just Scott Morrison. This is a policy that has heritage. It goes back to Paul Keating. It is baked into the Australian settlement. And the rationale for it is that the way to stop an electorate becoming anti-immigration full stop, which is what the problem that you've got in the United States and to a lesser extent in the United Kingdom and significantly in parts of Europe is to give the electorate complete control over intake. If you give the electorate complete control over intake, and this is what the former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull said in that big argument with Donald Trump when they had the big argument on the telephone and, and Donald Trump discovered that there was a person on the planet, of course, an Australian who could swear louder and longer <laughs> than he could because Australians, even really well-educated ones who went to Oxford like Malcolm Turnbull, have a, a mastery of the blue that shocks people. Yeah. And so... Donald Trump got an earful from Malcolm Turnbull. But in the middle of all the swears, Turnbull also made the point that if you give the electorate control over immigration at the national level, then 90% of the racism and hostility to immigration just bleeds away. But the effect of giving the electorate control over immigration is that you have to give the electorate control over refugee intake. So what Australia has done piece after piece after piece of legislation over many years by governments of all stripes is to make it harder and harder and harder to be a refugee in Australia. It's not that Australia takes no refugees, it does, but it basically treats them as immigrants. We'll have that one, lawyer, we'll have that one, teacher, Good. that one, engineer, doctor, plumber, the same logic that runs the points-based immigration system mm. is extended to a large degree, even though they, they don't use the same words, to refugees. And Comedians wouldn't make a mess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it's, 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 that is, and it's different from every other country. Okay, so I hear you. Yeah. So the, the coalition, as from what I take it, uh, advocated pursuing this, continuing with this policy. Oh, absolutely. And Labour? To be fair... Uh, the, uh, the way the Australian immigration system works is bipartisan. So uh, why, why then the, win, the coalition win? Why is it painted as a, a win for racism and xenophobia? Uh, because people on Twitter <laughs> don't have very many brains. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also the expectorating you get on Twitter from the Australian left, the hashtag Ozpol, it's one of the most... Uh, Contentious hashtags on Twitter, I think, is probably the best way of putting it. Uh, a lot of the, the visible presence of a Aus, hashtag Ozpol 
on Twitter is not actually from people in the Labor Party, let alone the Coalition. It's from Greens. And the Greens are the party that are opposed to mandatory detention and believe that Australia should honour the Refugee Convention. It's completely honest. If you go to the Greens website, you will see they set out all the arguments. But you will also be impressed by the level of nuance involved because they are aware that they're coming from a minority perspective and the Greens struggle to break 10% of the vote. And their preferences flow to Labor or have historically flowed to Labor, which Labor doesn't particularly like because Labor would like those primary votes for themselves. Uh, But that doesn't mean that Labor is following the Greens on the treatment of refugees, and they haven't. And it's a very, very deliberate bipartisan policy. It's why at the last election, centre-right government won and the two big issues were climate change slash Adani mine and franking credits tax, not immigration, because the the similarity between the two is the two parties, the two big parties in Australia is really, they're they're really close. And so we talk, we're talking about racism and people consider a racist state. And part of it, a major part of it is, of course, immigration. It's the treatment of refugees, but it's also the treatment of Aborigines and the native, you know, yes. native Indigenous if people. There, if there is racism in Australia, it's not towards immigrants. It's towards Aborigines. And I don't know whether there's much of it left still, but I saw horrible racism directed towards Aborigines growing up in Queensland. Now, Queensland was the state traditionally is one of the two most conservative states. The other one is Western Australia. And Queensland also had a long period of government when I was in school. I I remember this. I was in all the way through primary school and nearly all of my high school as well. We had a premier called Joe Bjorki-Peterson, who was actually born in New Zealand, funnily enough. I mean, so you could make all the New Zealand jokes you want about it. Very, very conservative, but not only conservative in the sense of, say, Ronald Reagan or George Bush Sr., but that sort of corrupt Southern conservatism that Americans can tell jokes about in the Southern states, they handle snakes there. To give you an idea, um, they used to refer to Queensland as the Deep North (laughs) based on the Deep South. Mm -hmm. And some of it is stereotyping. And I mean, I come from Queensland and even worse, North Queensland, which is supposedly where all of these really, really racist people are. Uh, And I certainly saw growing up uh, terrible racist treatment of Aboriginal people. Informal, it was never formalised, but I saw things like informal segregation. So you'd have a, you'd go to country towns and there would be four pubs. Three pubs would be for white people and they'd be quite nice. And one pub would be a total bin fire and that would be where all the Aborigines were expected to drink. And you'd have a situation where... Uh, a middle-class Aboriginal person, perhaps they'd gone to university or done fairly well for themselves, had gone down to to Brisbane and they'd come back in a suit and a tie or a nice dress or that kind of thing and try to walk into one of the white pubs and get told, oh, no, 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 you have to go to the Blackfellas pub. Stuff like, I saw stuff like that. Mm. You know, this this was a, a real thing. And uh, you, I saw things like, uh, my parents were farmers, I saw things like... Uh, my father had a farm manager who was an Aborigine and once again, a middle-class Aborigine, uh, pretty successful, had a nice car, had a BMW, that kind of thing. Every time he drove between Townsville and Cairns, which is a decent three, four-hour drive, he would be booked. And the only way you could describe that was driving while black. Mm. Mm. And uh, it, it has got less bad 
Queensland has, a, has now had a number of Labor governments. And until the recent focus on LGBT rights in the la- really only in the last election, I have to give credit to Labor and especially to Queensland Labor for being the party of anti-racism and a huge amount of the historic racism towards Aborigines in Queensland, especially, which I can I can speak about because I saw it happen, uh, was actually dealt with. It was gotten rid of by the, the Australian Labor Party in Queensland. So it's nowhere near as bad as it was. But you've got, when you've had like over 100 years of terrible racist treatment, people having to live on reservations. There was a period where Aboriginal people needed a pass to get off the mission or an Aboriginal reservation. It was like South Africa. Mm. Um, This is obviously going back before I was born, but it was still very, very serious. There was a period before 1967, Aboriginal people weren't counted in the census as if they weren't people, Mm. you know, this this kind of thing. Um, You can't have all of that without there being knock-on effects. And Aborigines in remote areas are still significantly disadvantaged compared to not only Aborigines and not only white people in the cities, but Aborigines in the cities as well. There's just a big gap between the two. Health, welfare, education, income, all of that. So, Helen, the last question we always like to ask is what's the one thing that no one's talking about that we should be talking about? I'm going to confine confine this to the UK, and having watched a few of your shows in the past, I have thought about my answer. One of the downsides to spending so long in the European Union was that the UK stopped paying attention to the Commonwealth. Mm. And the best-run countries in the world with the most innovative social policy and economic policies are not in the European Union. They're in the Commonwealth. They're Canada, Australia... Singapore, Barbados, Trinidad, and New Zealand. Extremely well-run, prosperous, educated places that have long histories of economic success, successful immigration programs, and excellent healthcare systems. By not paying attention to the Commonwealth, Britain has fallen in, in many respects behind the countries that were once its colonies pay more attention to Commonwealth countries. A lot of them are doing a lot of very good stuff. That's a really interesting point. Yeah. Something that no one has ever said. And even on the immigration thing, I mean, we, we talk about immigration from the EU. I mean, where better to have people coming from to this country than countries that used to be part of the Anglosphere, yeah. to, speak the same language? To be fair, one of the reasons why the vote for leave was very high amongst Commonwealth immigrants and people of Commonwealth ancestry mm in the UK was because there is a widespread perception amongst people across the Commonwealth, whether it's Australia, India, Jamaica, whatever, it does not matter, every Commonwealth country, that the joining of, as it then was, the European Economic Community was a deliberate snubbing of the Commonwealth and all these countries had sent soldiers to defend the old country, as it's often called, in wars and really bled for the United Kingdom and making common cause. And I I realise this is stereotyping, but this is the way a lot of Commonwealth people think about it. And it's made worse by things like the Windrush scandal Mm -hmm. and a snubbing of the Commonwealth, which bled for the UK and turning towards people who had once been enemies. And that is one of the reasons why the vote for leave among Commonwealth immigrants was so high. I mean, I don't know a single New Zealander who voted Remain. That they may exist, 
but I know a lot of New Zealanders over here and I haven't met one yet. Mm. And it's to do with that decision, the turning of the back on the Commonwealth. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, Helen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, here's your opportunity to plug your novels. Oh, right. Okay. Well, apart from the first one, which I showed earlier, um, these are the latest two. Uh-huh. Um, and the, these treated as, uh, have just been shortlisted for the Prometheus Award. Which Kingdom is, of the Wicked. Which is a big science fiction writing prize. I don't know whether when I will win it or whether I will win it. Um, it um, I, f I find out in the middle of July, apparently. So, but it's just been shortlisted. And you're on Twitter as well. I'm pretty active there. Did yes. You just tell everybody your Twitter handle. Yeah, it's at underscore Helen Dale. Uh, but it's an underscore first because otherwise I would have had finished up looking like a Russian bot with all those silly numbers. Yeah. Um, and I've got a YouTube channel and um, I, I'm kind of a little bit on Facebook, but it's mainly my friends. But, yeah, it's Twitter and the YouTube channel. The YouTube channel is quite new. I was talked into doing it by a friend and I went and bought an expensive microphone to do it. And I'm still learning how to do the whole YouTube thing. It's... Well, we'll quite. direct a few people your way. Yeah. Uh, go it's quite check. challenging. <laughs> yes, it is. It can be. Uh, we know from experience. We've moved to studio a few times and yeah. had all kinds of stuff happen. Uh, follow uh, Helen on Twitter. Uh, go to her YouTube channel. We'll put all those links in the description of the video. Uh, thank you very much for watching and listening this week. As always, follow us at TriggerPod on all the social media. Both Francis and I are doing shows in August. Francis will be here in London at the Bill Murray. I am in Edinburgh with my show called All Well That Ends Well. And we will see you in a week's time uh, with another brilliant episode. Absolutely. Leave us a nice iTunes review, guys. It really, really makes a difference to us. Uh, tell people, spread the word. Uh, go to www.angelcomedy.co.uk and that's where my show is. And yeah, like we said, we'll see you next week. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>